Last week, um, we started the new year by um, offering a greater context for the mindfulness practice that we practice here and that we emphasize. <clears throat> and we were um, contextualizing it within the practice as part of a path or a way, um, a way to practice that leads to a way of being, we could say. And I'd like to continue to um, a little bit expand the context of practice um, because sometimes the um, the teachings or the focus on mindfulness um, can be limited. That often we don't see the bigger picture pic- picture of the practice of mindfulness, where it fits in, let's say, to the path or the way, or also some of the qualities that are developed through the practice of mindfulness, some of the uh, implicit qualities. The explicit qualities are um, pretty clear that when we practice uh, insight meditation, we're developing mindfulness, we're developing concentration. But there are a whole host of other qualities that are implicit in the training itself, in the training to be mindful and aware of what's happening as it's happening. And a number of those qualities are important both in the training and as practices in and of themselves. And so partly to give context is to begin to to see or understand that the Dharma is vast. The Dharma is vast. And there are many, many doorways that lead to freedom. And there are many... um, there are many aspects or qualities or um, many qualities that mature as we practice mindfulness. And so there's qualities like um, equanimity develops through mindfulness practice. A certain kind of patience can develop through mindfulness practice a certain um, level of uh, relinquishment or letting go is needed to practice mindfulness. A sense of kindness or care is part of what develops, whether we speak about it implicitly, uh, whether we speak about it explicitly, or it just develops naturally because we we can't be mindful without being kind or caring or having a certain amount of generosity towards ourselves, or patience towards ourselves, or the quality of truthfulness is is generated and uh, developed because we can't be mindful if we're not actually honest about what's happening. You notice you can't you can't be mindful about something you wish to be happening. You know you could, you can't sit here and pay attention to feel loving when you're pissed off about something. You actually have to pay attention. You have to be mindful to what's here. We have to be truthful to what's here. Otherwise, mindfulness doesn't work. A certain kind of determination or steadfastness or will is developed when we practice mindfulness. And so these 
qualities develop more implicitly until we speak about them. And then they can also be developed explicitly. And the qualities that I'm, I'm describing are often called the paramis or the paramitas in Buddhism. In, uh, in Theravada Buddhism there are ten paramitas which I've mostly named. Um, but I'll say them explicitly. Giving, um, virtue or ethical conduct, renunciation, uh, wisdom, energy, loving-kindness or friendliness, truthfulness, patience, equanimity. And, and throughout the year, periodically, I'll speak to different qualities this year. I'll speak to different paramis. And I'll start tonight with the first one, which is the parami of what's called dana, or giving, but also sometimes called relinquishment. <clears throat> Dana is also known as generosity, so it's translated a few different ways, giving, generosity, relinquishment, and hopefully though I want to speak to it in three different levels, as the foundation of practice, as, as a practice in and of itself, and of, as the realization of practice. And in the foundational sense, the Buddha, the Buddha always began his teaching of the, what's called the graduated path, which is the path of sila, samadhi, and panya, which I spoke of last week, the path of ethical conduct, um, uh, contemplative understanding and wisdom. He always would begin his teaching if somebody came to him, if they were new to the practice, if they had just heard about the Buddha and wanted to kind of check him out, see what was he about. He would always first begin his teaching by talking about generosity and the importance of generosity. And and begin to invoke the quality of being generous, of giving, of that kind of uh, abundance of heart in order for people to enter the path. And I assume we could interpret this a number of different ways, but I'll tell you how I think about it. I think about it this way. I think that the practice of meditation is not so easy. That the practice of turning towards what's here, what's here in human life, what's here in a human being, is actually not so easy. It's why the Buddhist teachings, uh, he described his teachings <coughs> as going against the stream of the culture he lived in and clearly going against the stream of the culture we live in. That the movement or energy of the conventional reality is to go outside of ourselves, is to seek happiness outside of ourselves, is to get and have 
in order to be happy or satisfied or content. And our whole economy is based on this to some extent. And we have developed a, quite a brilliant advertising industry to help support that movement to go looking outside of ourself to find happiness. And to really the, 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 the movement is to think that what's good is somewhere else and that we need to get something from somewhere else to be happy or satisfied. And the, and the movement uh, of mindfulness practice is the opposite direction, is to actually turn towards what's here, turn towards ourselves, turn towards our humanness to find happiness, to turn towards our suffering to find happiness. And so, of course, it's a great paradox in a culture that treasures feeling good and really avoids as much as possible feeling bad. I, I just, as I speak, I just think of the, the industry, the different industries that specifically relate to that, whether it's the drug industry or the entertainment industry or the, um, I guess sports is in, I was going to say sports is also same, all's, that all, somewhere we, you know, we should look outside, we should get something else in order to feel okay. And, uh, uh, and that premise is based on not valuing our suffering, not understanding the value of suffering, which the Buddha did. He understood that to begin to look at our experience, to look at human experience, to look at the truth of human experience, the difficulties of human experience, of having a body, of having a heart, of having a mind, of living with other humans, let alone with nature and the, and the um, existential reality of impermanence and change. He understood the value of turning towards that as a basis for finding true freedom. And uh, there's a beautiful uh, quote from Ajahn Chah who sums it up by saying, to, to run from suffering is to run towards it. To run from suffering is to run towards it. And that this turning towards our actual experience, our confusion or our fear or our anger or our desires, our vulnerability, our ignorance, our um, belief in our separateness, that to begin to turn towards that means we need to be kind to ourselves. We, it's very hard to do that if we're not kind. If there isn't a certain quality of generosity already right there as we begin, that we be generous towards ourselves in the process. Otherwise, the process will be too difficult, that the kindness is needed, compassion is needed, a friendliness towards ourselves, a non-judgmental attitude is needed, and a kind of generosity, seeing that that there's a certain giving 
to ourselves of care and kindness, of an empathy to ourselves, offering that to ourselves to begin with. From Bhikkhu Bodhi, he says, for people who had not taken the Buddha as a teacher, he, and would come to him to learn about the teachings, he would start by emphasizing the value of giving. And only after people had come to appreciate this quality of heart and mind would he then introduce, him to, introduce them to the other aspects of his teaching. And so a certain level of generosity is needed, that we be able to give ourselves what's needed in order to practice, in order to begin the path, to see what's true, what's true in our experience, what's the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, what's the truth of freedom from suffering, what's the truth that leads to freedom. So dana, or generosity, and it's, it's actually a beautiful word. <coughs> Generosity in the dictionary means showing a readiness to give more of something as of money or time than is strictly necessary or expected. Showing kindness towards others or self. A nobility of thought or behavior characterized by abundance or amplitude. From the word generous, meaning liberal, liberal in giving or sharing. Characterized again by nobility, forbearance, magnanimous, of noble lineage. And the, and the etymology also emphasizes this lineage. It says, the original sense was of noble birth, Hence, characteristic of noble birth, a kind of courageous, magnanimous um, quality, not mean. And it's an interesting overlap because the Buddha's followers, the teachings of the Buddha are called the Four Noble Truths, suffering, cause of suffering, freedom from suffering, the path that leads to freedom. These are the Four Noble Truths. Another way we might understand them is that they're ennobling. They're the four ennobling truths. And the uh, Eightfold Path is called the Noble Eightfold Path or the Ennobling Eightfold Path. And the Buddha's followers were talked about called the Noble Ones because there was a quality of what was related to as nobility, a certain nobility of spirit a certain generosity that was associated at that time with nobility, a certain magnanimity that was associated with the nobility. But here we're not talking exactly um, about means. What we're talking about here is the nobility of spirit that's possible for human beings. And we often recognize that. We recognize that in great people, in people we admire for their giving, like Mother Teresa, or Martin Luther King, or Gandhi. People who give of themselves so fully, and we 
we see the nobility even if they live as Gandhi did, really as a poor man, living very much a renunciate's life. Or it could be people we know in our life. They may not be quite on that you know, exalted plane as Mother Teresa or Gandhi, but people we know in our own life who are giving. We're often impressed with their quality of spirit. The, the, we, can, we can recognize the maturity that is there with the giving, with the care, with the letting go that's there in the giving. And the word generous meant liberal in giving or sharing. Liberal, liberality, liberal, comes from the word free or means free. And so it's a beautiful connection here between giving and freedom. That they're related, that there's something implied here already. That the Buddha pointing towards generosity at the beginning of the path is also pointing to a quality that's here at the end of the path. This freedom or ease and openness and kindness that's expressed in giving. Take a moment, take a moment for yourself now and just see if you can remember or reflect or sense into the quality of generosity for yourself. And you can do this one or two ways. You can do it by reflecting about somebody who's been generous to you, or you can reflect about when you've been generous. And it could be a little thing, doesn't have to be big. If you've ever fed somebody else's parking meter when you saw the meter maid was coming, or the meter man, or giving in any way. That when we're generous, there's no, it's not holding. There's immediately a letting go. There's an offering. There's a non-attachment. That whatever, when there's true giving, giving can be at different levels, actually. The Buddha, the Buddha talked about it this way. He talked about miserly giving, um, a brotherly or sisterly giving, and then kingly or, king or, or queenly giving. And, um, and he valued all of them. But miserly giving is when you give something you don't want. Okay, I've had it with this thermos. I'm getting a new thermos. Oh, here, would you like this thermos? It's kind of considered miserly giving. It's, you know, it's good. It's good to give. But it's not quite the full um, maturation of giving, maybe. And then brotherly or sisterly giving is giving something but it's not also, it's not a big deal. Maybe it's not something you don't want, but it's, you know, it's just something or somebody wants and you give it. Or somebody needs something and you give it. It's very simple. It's very kind, wonderful. And then he also, and maybe we shouldn't rate these so much. I don't know, miserly, brotherly, sisterly, kingly, queenly. But he did say, he said, kingly or queenly giving is when we give what we love the most when we give what we love the most. Even when it's something, I love my thermos, but somebody wants it and I, I give it away. That would be more kingly giving. 
or there's a picture we love and somebody comes and they want it. Or our time, maybe. You know, sometimes our time is really precious to us, but somebody needs some time and we give it. Kingly giving, queenly giving. So any of those, so just to remember what it's like to give, what it's like to say here, or offer something to somebody from your, not just of your money or your means or something physical, but of your time or of your attention or of your care or of your love or of your intelligence or your creativity or your vision. When we actually give, we're acknowledging something whether it's explicit or implicit. We're acknowledging that whatever we give, we don't actually need it, even if we love it. We don't have to hold on to it. We know that our well-being is not based on something, anything, that's conditioned. Our well-being is not based on having some things. Our well-being is not based on just doing exactly what we want, having our time all the time, or having it quiet all the time, whatever it might be. And so we're already seeing something. We're seeing something a little deeper about the nature of things, the nature of who and what we are. We begin to see that we're okay. That there is a certain giving and a certain receiving that is happening all the time. That we are part of a interconnected web in that way. The Buddha suggested that we could practice, that we could practice being generous. And as I said, I believe the mindfulness practice itself is a form of generosity, of giving ourselves. It asks us to give ourselves to the present moment. And whatever, where, whatever practice you're doing, let's say you're practicing mindfulness of the breathing, that, that the understanding of generosity is to give ourselves to the breath, to give ourselves to each breath. Not so much, oh, this breath, this is the good breath, this breath I don't want. No, actually, we give ourselves totally, we give ourselves fully. Or if we're practicing, maybe it's more of a bare attention, whatever comes, we give ourselves to whatever comes. If there's a moment of equanimity, we give ourselves to it. If there's a moment of anger, we're mindful of that. We give ourselves to that very fully, to staying present with it very fully. Whatever comes. Uh, Albert Camus said, real generosity towards the future lies in giving all to the present. Real generosity to the future lies in giving all to the present. 
It's a beautiful understanding of mindfulness practice. Sometimes people think meditation is self-indulgent. But the more we can be here, the more we can actually show up, the more we can be mindful of our experience with a kindness and a care and a wisdom and an understanding, the more we can be present in any moment of our life, the more we'll have access to our intelligence and our creativity and our heart to respond to life as it is. <clears throat> Part of the practice of dana, of generosity, is to begin to look at where we hold, where we contract, where we're tight, where we're stingy, grasping. And part of being mindful of the obstacles to generosity, to the opposite of generosity, is not to be judgmental of it. That we're not practicing to judge ourselves or to think poorly of ourselves but to understand we're practicing in the service of wisdom to see what's true. And so as we enter a doorway or a portal like generosity, we're going to see where we're generous and we're going to see where we're not generous. And we want to see that. And we don't want to see it in order to beat ourselves up or because of some moralistic idea about generosity. We want to see it because we want to understand what is the potential for the freedom of the human heart? What is the potential for our own heart's freedom, for our own heart's beneficence? What's the possibility for our own heart's nobility? And there are many ways you can begin to explore this. One is, one beautiful way to pay attention is just notice the impulse to give and then when you act on it and when you don't act on it. That often people have the impulse of quite naturally to help somebody or do something or offer something or participate by giving of themselves. Notice when you have the impulse and then you hold back. You don't act on it. And you could, as a, pra- <coughs> Excuse me. As a practice, you could um, see what it's like to take a day or one day a week or take a week and actually act on all your impulses to give or to participate in some way to offer yourself in whatever way comes forward, whether it's at your work or in your family, in your relationships, in public, on the bus, wherever it might be. We need to give. We need to give. Human life is unsatisfactory if we're not actually giving of ourselves in some way, shape, or form.
And again, I want to make this very broad. It may be giving of our creativity, giving of ourselves in our work, giving of our um, love, and, it could, and our, it could be in many forms, like gardening is a form of giving. Giving to the earth, politics, giving of your time or attention, beginning to recognize, this is an important part of the practice of generosity, is actually beginning to recognize what generosity is, where generosity is. That I would assume for everybody here, it's already happening. Mostly we don't see things through this lens. If you're a parent, the giving is tremendous. And the truth is, if you're a child, as you mature, you have to give a lot to your parents, too, because they're not perfect, right? Or in a relationship, tremendous amount of giving is needed for any relationship, a friendship, a lover relationship, partner, marriage, work relationships. To begin to recognize the giving and the receiving that's happening. Winston Churchill said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. The Buddha put it differently. He said, he said, if people only knew the value of giving, as he did, that they would not take a single meal without sharing their food with others. He understood giving as a power. Giving as a power, as a virtue. And the word virtue has the same root as virility. It's a power of the heart. That generosity is a power of the heart. The power to affect life. The power to change human life. <clears throat> Mahasi Sayadaw, one of the great Burmese teachers of the last century, of whose lineage we are in, um, he said this about generosity. He said, acts of generosity inspired by loving kindness live long in human memory, generating love and respect among humankind, thus laying the foundations for the unity of the whole world. Acts of generosity inspired by loving kindness live long in human memory, generating love and respect among humankind, thus laying the foundations for the unity of the whole world. The world survives based on generosity, based on the giving and receiving that's always happening. And sometimes we, it's obscured it's obscured by our um, economic system a little bit. Sometimes we don't see it within capitalism. But if you've ever even gone to a store where you're buying some clothes and somebody really gives of themselves as a salesperson, you feel the difference. Or if a teacher in school is really giving of themselves, you feel the difference. 
Or if you're having some kind of problem, you know how you have to call now, right? You call and you don't know where in the world you're getting help, right? You're calling and somebody's talking to you from India, maybe, or from the Philippines. And if they're really generous with their time and their help, it makes such a difference. And we forget how much is given. We forget how generous the world is in some way. I mean, and especially for us here, I mean, even, even here, look at where we are, sitting in a beautiful place. We all have clothes. Probably we've all mostly eaten. Even if there's, even if we could eat a little more, we'd mostly eat. That somehow reality keeps giving, somehow. Or the breath, or the body. Things that we take for granted. We don't see how generous reality's been. Said Master Dogen, he said, when one learns well, one learns that being born and dying are both giving. But to be born and to die are both giving. We're given a body. We're given a life. It's kind of amazing. I'm not saying exactly who gave it. I'm not sure. You know, our parents, and even something else. Who knows? But to not take things for granted, and this is a quality that develops over and over again in mindfulness practice, which is to not take anything for granted, is to begin to see how much is given to us. A life, a day, because we don't know. It might not be given tomorrow. We assume, we assume, when we live in a trance, we assume, oh, it'll be here tomorrow, our life. But that's when we don't realize that it's been given. And then to die to give is really moving towards the next level of giving, the level of relinquishment, the understanding of giving as totally letting go, that to give is to let go. And it's in this personal way of giving of our means or our time or our effort. But also as we practice mindfulness, we give ourselves to the present moment to where we fully let go. We start to relinquish any holding, any grasping, any clinging that confines or defines or limits reality. And so reality can start to give back. The Dharma can start to give its gifts to us as we let go. The Dharma can begin to show the truth of the way things are as we let go of our holding, as we let go of our contraction, as we let go of our views and opinions and beliefs and come more and more fully into the present moment, into the here and now. <clears throat> Thank you.
So realization in terms of generosity means realizing our total interconnectedness with all things. That the giving and receiving is happening all the time. That as we offer ourselves, others are offering themselves. <coughs> and when we're aware of it, when it's more explicit, then we can enjoy it even more. We can delight in it. The Buddha encouraged people to recognize the impulse to give, the action of giving, and the satisfaction of giving. That there's something really, um, it's a funny term, heartwarming about giving. You know, I, I am reflecting right now about a little bit about the holidays which we've just been through and how much suffering there is with the holidays, right? I mean, it's just... But really, it's based somewhere in a reality of giving. That there's an acknowledgement of what we've given and that we want to give back. My friend Deborah Chamberlain Taylor said, I notice how generosity and goodness move in cycles. If someone is kind, I feel gratitude in the impulse towards giving. If someone is selfish, I find myself more guarded, withheld, protective. The cycle of generosity fuels more generosity. The cycle of selfishness fuels more selfishness. Beginning to see how interconnected we are, we can begin to see the virtue or the power of our heart and how we might act in the world begins to affect the whole world. Emerson, Emerson talked about it this way. He called it the endless circulation of divine charity. It's a great line. The endless circulation of divine charity. The wind sows the seed. The sun evaporates the sea. The wind blows the vapor to the field. The rain feeds the plant. The plant feeds the animal. It's all being given. The whole world. Here's a poem from Alison Luderman. Consider the generosity of the one-year-old who has no words to exchange with you, yet instead offers up her favorite drooled-on blanket. Her green rhinoceros, as big as she is, her cloth doll with the long blonde pigtails, her battered cardboard books swung open on their soggy pages. If you were outdoors, she would hand you a dead beetle, a fistful of grass, a pebble, by way of introduction, or just because. <clears throat> and if a moment later she wanted it back, it would be for the joy of the game that makes of every simple object an offering. This is me, here is who I am. In the same way, sun draped a buttered scarf across your face. Rose opens herself to your glance. The rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering and shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. 
while you worry over matters of finance or of relationship, important issues related to getting and spending, having and hoarding, though you were once that baby, though you were still that world. Aiken Roshi talked about it this way. He talked about the natural expression of gratitude as the enjoyment of receiving as expressed in giving. Enjoyment of receiving as expressed in giving. And one of the beautiful understandings of generosity is not that you can't have, but what we have we hold lightly. And that we also let it go when it's appropriate, in its time. That we can enjoy the things of this world, the beautiful things of this world. All the amazing technology, we can enjoy it very much. But we understand that our happiness is not based on holding on to it or having to have it. That it's here for a while as we are here for a while. And so that even our whole our own life we don't have to grasp onto or cling to. We understand it's only given for a while, like everything else, and that's the nature of reality. And the generosity then is to receive a life and to relinquish a life of the same giving. Aiken Roshi talked about generosity as the hallmark of human maturity. The hallmark of human maturity. And I think it's part of our maturity. I think as we I think I think it's a natural development of our maturity. Sometimes we're more generous when we're young. But at a certain point I think um, I think it's really an understanding. Um, I th let, let me put it this way. I think when we're young, it happens quite naturally. I think as we're older, we really understand our place in the world, our temporality of the world. And then the giving comes from a different place. It's, it, it doesn't just come from a natural giving. It's more of a, an understanding of the reality of the way things are. But all is given and it's only temporary. And then we become part of that giving, part of that offering. We make our offering to life. And it's beautiful to offer ourselves to this life in whatever way we can, whatever level, whatever way our heart speaks or sings. We have a couple minutes for questions or comments, reactions. Generosity for those of us whose tendency it is to 
good question. So the question's about when our identity is tied up in being a giver. So it's a certain kind of giving, and I think the Buddha would say that's good. But I, I, I would suggest that maybe it would be important to really pay attention to the to be mindful of the identity itself and to see that maybe there's a level of giving that's mixed up that that the the motivation is a mixed motivation and that there's a pure motivation there and then there's a motivation that's tied up with identity and i wouldn't let that stop you from giving i wouldn't let that stop you but I would, I would say that part of our practice is to keep paying attention to our motivation to purify or clarify our motivation so that we can begin to separate our identity from the purity of heart. And just see that um, the identity is kind of an added-on thing. The idea, oh, me, that I'm giving now or that I'm a giver even. Um, everything is given. Why do we have to add on the identity? And so that's part of mindfulness practice. We'll begin to reveal our identities, the various identities, whether we're a getter or a keeper, whatever your identity might be. Um, you know, or, and it doesn't matter. what It could be the identity as a teacher or a student. Every identity is a prison. Every identity has its temporary role and importance but it's not the truth of who we are in essence and so it's always important to it's actually really good to see when we identify we want to see that so we can begin to study identity in the service of letting go of identity and then to see what's here uh, one of the ways the Buddha described awakening as the sure hearts release the sure heart's release. And that release of heart is totally generous. It's just the nature of the heart when it's free of identity to be totally generous. I hope that's a little helpful. Right, it's not so much a moral question in Buddhism. It's not about being a good person, particularly. It's about um, freeing ourselves from the constraints that limit our natural heart's response. And in terms of um, figuring it out for yourself, that's why mindfulness practice is so important. Because mindfulness will keep... Um, 
developing our capacity to pay attention at more and more refined levels of our mind and heart so we can actually see what our motivation is. And that's the level you're asking about. And both questions really are about motivation. Is We want to begin to see our motivation. And, and part of this, and I hope to give a, really a whole talk about this soon, which is to be able to see when our motivation is self-centered and when our motivation is free of self-centeredness. And by self-centered, I don't mean we don't take care, by, by free of self-centeredness, I don't mean that we don't take care of ourselves, because to be free of self-centeredness, we do take care of ourselves. But it's not based on greed, aversion, confusion. It's not based on the small sense of self. And it's, so, so the mindfulness, what, what becomes very important in the mindfulness is actually being able to recognize when we're identified with the small sense of self, with a motivation or an identity that's somehow um, uh, contracted around fear or anger or confusion or ignorance. And when we're acting with non-aversion, uh, non non-greed, non-confusion, because if we can't recognize freedom, we're not going to be able to recognize suffering. We're not going to be able to, we need to be able to actually recognize the difference between freedom and not freedom. Does that make sense? And then the question, we'll see how the question goes from there, your question about whether to give or not. Because then it's not so much a choice of me deciding necessarily. It's what's appropriate in a moment. And it's not even an intellectual question so much. There could be, there's a possibility for a more natural response rather than figuring, we're so used to figuring it out through our minds we think that's the only way we can figure it out. We don't even know there might be another way. There might be a way to respond to reality where reality responds to reality. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.